Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we come before you expecting but also knowing what happens. And so, dearly, Father, help us to learn how to anticipate something we already know that is going to happen and to put in our own minds and our own hearts, again, the importance of knowing, the importance of anticipating that you became flesh and dwelt among us to redeem us. May that never become old. May we understand it even more fully today as we look at the flood, as we look at what's going on, dearly Father, and the text of Scripture, may we drink even deeper to know you even more and then to understand ourselves in light of who you are. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that learning the hard facts of life can be hard. Imagine that. I'm going to give you uh, three facts of life. One of them, the first two might cause you to fall into some type of very depressed state, but stick with me. One in one hundredth of one percent chance. So let me go through that again. You have a one in one hundredth of one percent chance of being remembered by recorded history. Uh, that's just one of the hard facts of life. I tried to type that in to see what that would look like, and all it just kept coming up was 100%. All right, which means, guess what? Most of you will not be remembered by recorded history. So the lesson is, do not be concerned that much about what other people think, because guess what? No one's going to remember you anyway. Uh, now you may, you're dismissed, you may go. Yeah, no. The second... The majority of what you own will be gone in less than one generation after you die. I'll help you out with that one more time. The majority of what you own will be gone in less than one generation after you die. So the question is, why are you clinging so tightly to the stuff you have now? One other fact comes from Psalm 139, verse 16, where the psalmist reminds us that as God was knitting us together in our mother's womb, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written for me, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. One of the facts of life is that your days are numbered. Now, if we're, care if we're not too care if we're, I would call it almost frivolous, we can run to either fatalism or determinism, which I would argue is not biblical because we do not sit here fatalistically saying, well, my days are numbered. Does it really even matter? Because the psalmist in Psalm 90 tells us very clearly this, so teach us to number our days that we may have a, get a heart of wisdom. So that the sheer fact that your days are numbered is something that should call us to number our days because the Bible is very clear. The choices you make today, you are responsible for and have eternal consequences. With those truths ringing in our ears, as we turn to today's passage in Genesis chapter 7, we're going to turn to a very interesting passage in Scripture a passage in Scripture that we are confronted to our very face that there was a worldwide massacre of human and animal life. This is what the text tells us. And the other texts around us will tell us that the reason they are killed is because of man's sinful choices, his sinful heart, 
and God's holy character. The temptation when we come to passages like this is to soften them. Because let's be honest, if you were going to have a rousing speech, you would not start off with a worldwide massacre and say, go warm and be filled and enjoy your afternoon. So we can try to make these things more palatable. Instead of understanding that God in time and space destroyed the world because of sin, So we can talk about the animals on the ark, we can talk about the how and the why, because we don't really want to address the issue that there was a time and space where God said, I will blot out all of mankind. But I would argue that if we ignore these truths, we do it at our own peril. So let's look at the text in front of us, and let's read it together. Genesis 7, 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of, of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature. And they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was life and breath. And all those entered, male and female, and all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, before I read the other parts, I want to pause, and I want you to look at a couple words as I read verses 17 through 24. I want you to see the word prevailed, all right? As we read it, notice what's prevailing here. So let's follow as I read. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them with fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Underline breath of life if you're an underliner. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, male, men, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I think sometimes we miss the drama. When you look up the word prevailed, literally it's the idea of a battle going on and who is winning. The waters, all right? The water is destroying the earth. It is literally prevailing over it as if the earth is trying to claim its spot. But what does the waters do? Prevails. And just in case if you didn't notice it, did it what? Prevailed and prevailed and prevailed. And then the summarizing statement is the waters did what? Prevailed over the earth. It means the waters won if there was a battle going on. So let's look at the points of this text. We come to a text like this, and I think at times, if we're not careful... We can take the verse in Timothy that all Scripture is God-given and is profitable, and you sort of go like, what, what do you find profitable out of a massacre? And I think there's much to learn here. Point number one is that God brings the flood. Notice, first of all, in verses, verse 11 especially, notice the historical nature of these verses. What do you see over and over and over again in verse 11? You see time. Noah's exact age is given down to the very month of how old he is. And you may say, why is that important? 
Well, I would argue it's important just like in our own lives we live. When a major life change happens, an event in the world, let alone the life of Noah, you remember these things. So Noah literally could tell you how old he was down to the very day that the flood happened. This is no small thing. Because this is showing, once again, the historical nature of this text. No different than if I, I'm not going to, but I could tell you exactly where I was, where, what was going on, what the day looked like, where Allison was at the moment on September 11th, 2001. I can tell you every single thing about that day, with, with a, given a couple of details. But when I remember the individual coming up and telling me that a plane had crashed into a building and everything else that went on during that time, I remember it. I can tell you what happened and everything else. What we see here is I believe Noah, when, as this was passed down, Noah can literally tell you exactly when this happened. Why? Because it was a massive event, an event that is to be remembered. Also, I think we see as well we see God had promised this would exactly take place. Look at verse 4 in chapter 7. In seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And guess what God did in seven days? He literally did that. We could even go back even further in, Noah cha- in Genesis chapter 6, where God said, in 120 years I will bring destruction. Now the time has come. God had been prophesying this to take place. God had said it was going to take place, and guess what it did? It took place just like God had said it was going to take place. These are faith-strengthening moments. We need to see these as faith-strengthening moments. Not just for Noah, but all of us who walk by faith as well. For the things that God had promised. When God had promised to Noah that destruction was coming, Noah had not seen it yet. But he had faith, and what did he do? He built an ark because faith is seen in our obedience in obedience to the fact that what God said, he is going to do. Faith is trusting in what God said will happen. We do not live in a world with random events. We live in a world that is controlled by God. And so when he says something is going to happen, it happens. And sometimes we can sit here and say, what are we to learn from that? Because notice, here's what happens. On that day that God had said it was going to happen, in verse 11, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven opened. Who opened them? God, on the day that he said it was going to happen. Creation, controlled by God, the creator, obeys its creator. So what happened on that day? Give me a second. I'm going to take a little swig here of water. So those who look into the historical nature of things and can look at the earth around us, it's called historical science. The, science, the study of historical science is the study of history, all right, of what happened in the past. Did this happen and this not happen? And so one of the things you will find when you study the flood, you will find out when the waters of the deep burst forth, you had massive plate tectonics on the earth moving. Literally, the crust of the earth is moving to the place that it is now. In order for this to happen, massive amounts of energy are being released. Earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, massive storms are all taking place according to the counsel of Almighty God on what He set forth. And what He is doing during this time 
is bringing to pass everything that he said would happen. So let's pause for a second. We see this in Genesis here. Let's just fast forward redemptive history to one day when a group of 12 men are in a boat and a storm is raging against that boat and the Son of God stands up, the creator of the universe stands up and in a different way, instead of causing the storm, stands up and rebukes the storm and what does the world do? What does the sea and the winds and the waves do? Silence, because they obey the Creator's voice, which I would say is an in-your-face to all of us, image-bearers of God. Do we obey the Creator the same way? Not only that, how do the disciples respond? What a great show. Do they say that? No. The disciples respond the only way you can respond when you are in the when you are with the Almighty God, they respond like this. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? This should be our response when we see the devastation that the flood made all over the earth. This response, like the disciples, who is this, is a response of worship. What is worship? We have to ask ourselves. Worship literally means to bow, to humble oneself. So when you think of the word worship, you need to think of the word humility, because that is what goes hand in hand. So literally my call to worship every Sunday morning is a call to what? Humility. When we understand that, it's to say, Lord, all week I thought I was number one. And now my call to gather is to gather what really matters, and what really matters is what? Christ. And we humble ourselves before Almighty God. That is why it is so bizarre to listen when I hear people say things like this. I couldn't be humble today because my favorite song wasn't sang. And you're like, wait a minute. But we say it like this. Oh, I couldn't really get involved in, wor in worship today because you didn't sing my favorite song. And you're going, wait a minute. I didn't know worship was about you. Worship is about God and God alone, and about humbly submitting ourselves before Him. Think about even in Luke chapter 5, when Peter sees the sovereignty of God over creation. Peter, a fisherman, who had fished multiple times, and in multiple ways that night before. I've, I met two guys when I used to work at the docks. There was one guy, there was two brothers who fished all the time. One said he had the right side, the other one had the left side, and they never let each other fish off of their own sides. They would always fight and be like, yeah, there was more fish on the right side of the boat than there was left side. If you know anything about fishing, you know how silly that is. But Peter, when he was there, and all of a sudden in nets that were empty all night long by his own strength, God, in the sovereign control over the universe, filled his net. What does Peter do? Does he sit there and start this calculator of how much money he's going to make? Does Peter sit there and say, Jesus, we need to have a 50-50 deal here. Let's go fishing every night. Peter literally cries out, depart from me. I am a sinner. Because he understands when he stands before Almighty God where he stands. When we truly understand, when we look at the power that it took to bring about this worldwide flood, May we remind ourselves again 
that by the grace of God, so would go us. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. When we realize that when we see the world around us that has been destroyed by a worldwide flood and even the beauty that is in that destruction, it should cause us to worship our great God and Creator. But I want to notice a couple other things that are going on in this text. Notice at verse 16. And those who entered, male and female, and all flesh went in as God has commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Now, I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, but there's literally two sides to this, all right? There is the outside, and then there's the inside. When God shuts the door, there are those on the outside. For those on the outside, this time of long-suffering and repentance is over. The call to repent has now stopped. Those inside, what we see by God closing the door, God is preserving the life of Noah and the animals. The ark throughout the Bible has been a beautiful picture of salvation. And what we see here is that those who are saved in the ark are held by God, because God is the one who shuts the door. Turn with me to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, we see this, where Jesus, when he was on earth here, speaking of the good shepherd and using the analogy of a shepherd and a sheep, notice the, per, the preserving work of the Father and of Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27. Notice the intimacy that the shepherd has with the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So what we see very clearly taught, the shepherd knows his sheep. And not only does the shepherd knows his sheep, the sheep are safe in the shepherd's hand. And so not only are they safe in the shepherd's hand, but there's another hand that's surrounding that hand, which is the Father's hand surrounding them. And we see not only are you kept by Christ, you are also kept by God the Father himself. This is a beautiful truth that we must not miss. And so as the storms rage around us, the believer is called to rest in God's hand. The door to the, every vessel, if you've ever been on any type of boat and any type of thing, the weakest part of the ship is the boat, is the, is the door area there. If you don't believe me in that, just read about the Edmund Fitzgerald and find out when a main hatchway gives way, according to the song, all right? And when it gives way, and the gales of November come storming, you're in trouble because a hatch is literally a big door that they poured ore in. And so what does God do? The weakest place of the vessel, God seals. He does not say to Noah, make sure you put some extra pitch around that door because that's your weak pot. He says, I've got this. And he seals the door. Because where we are weak is where he is strong. 
Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12. Second Corinthians twelve, nine through ten. So this is Paul pleading that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. We do not know whether it was a physical ailment or something else, but we know that this is something that Paul had pleaded with the Lord, remove this from me, whatever it is. This is something that God is going to say basically. No. And this is how he says no. Think through this for a second. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For Christ's sake, then, I am content with weakness, insults, Hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. These are truths that we must allow to sink deep into our hearts and minds. Where you are weak, there God is strong, and the way to that is understanding what God said to him. My grace is more than sufficient for you. It is all you need. That's what the word sufficient means. It is all that is needed. But do you believe it? This is why when God shuts the door, no one knows what. God is the one that is holding us in. God is the one who's securing us. Because God was the one who closed With that being said, though, I want to pause for a moment. Back to the text here. Let's go to Genesis chapter 7. And these are things that if we're not careful, we can say, oh, I don't really like to think about that, Tim, but I'm going to say, well, we need to because God's Word talks about it. Okay, God shuts the door. There was a deadline. 120 years of repentance, and what does God do? Shuts the door. We live in a world of soft deadlines all over the place. I mean, CBC, one of the things that I would mean, my frustration about this church is, what's the point of a sign-up if you can just show up anyway? All right, because the reason is, who's going to stand at the door and say, I'm sorry, you did not sign up? All right, and I'm like, so then why do we put a sign-up sheet? And the only answer is, so we know how many people may be there. I'm like, well, all right, but there's sign-ups in the back, sign up. But if you don't sign up, guess what? You can still show up, all right? All right, imagine if we treated, God treated the ark that way. The door is closed, but if you still want to hop on later, you can. All right, no, the door is closed. God called it. Those are some hard facts of Scripture. And so instead of sitting here like fatalist doomsayers, what does that cause us to do? To go out with more boldness to present the gospel with even more clarity because saying there is a day coming, there is a deadline that you must repent and believe. And so if we're not careful, we can go to both extremes. If it, Well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to sit in my house. Why does it matter? No. First of all, you're disobeying the call of God to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but you're not preaching a soft deadline. What are you preaching? 
that God will return and judge the living and the dead, who, guess what? That's you, and you must repent. I don't know how much more clearly we can say that. And we all sit here and nod our heads, and I'm equally as responsible that as well. So what must we pray? We must pray that God would give us boldness to proclaim those things. Because if we really do believe, just like at the ark, there was a deadline, what does that also mean? There is a deadline coming. And what have we been called to do in this time of repentance? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Preach the gospel with our last and dying breath. No matter how hoarse our voice is, we share the gospel with every ounce of our being, calling men to repentance. And God will do his work saving his people. So what we see, though, in this, a passage of Scripture that I would say we should not read over quickly. The final point, which is a point that each one of us who truly loves humanity should tear up as we read that there came a point that God blotted them out. We don't say that callously. God used the floodwaters to blot out all living things on the earth. Now we need to be careful. We do not go further than what Scripture allows. Here are the biblical facts about God. Ezekiel 33, 11, No pleasure does God take in the death of the wicked. God is not up there saying, About time, you guys. You know, you hate me, and I'm going to... You know, this is not the character of God. It literally says he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is not up there going, you know what, you spurn my name, here's a zinger back of you. No, that is not the character of God. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, though. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have a prayer. But the prayer of Hannah. And it's interesting. I'll give you a little context of Hannah. The Lord had closed her womb. And then the Lord had opened her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. And the Lord now opens her womb. And here's what she prays. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not the arrogant come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to be hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has as many children as the forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. You can keep reading one if you want, but verse 6 is interesting. 
what do we see? Not only is God the giver of life, but because he is the creator, he takes life as well. That is why one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not kill. That is not your job. Whose job is it? God's. It's about as simple as you can understand it to be. But yet if we try with our limited minds to try to understand all of this, I think we can run many times to unbiblical conclusions. Because in the human mind, we function in one emotion after another. So I'll give an example of what this means. So if I am angry, I am not happy. Because I'm angry. And if I am happy, I am not angry. And so we try to take our way of thinking and we try to apply that then to God. But one of the things real quick is God is not us and we are not God. The biblical term for this is called God is a unity. That means when God shows up, all of his attributes are all on full display. Full display are all on full display all at that time. So when we see his hand of judgment, what are we also supposed to see? His righteousness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, and all of those are there on full display as well. Even though we may see a certain aspect of it, that does not mean he stops being all those other things as well. And so, when we see God blotting out mankind. This does not mean on that day God ceased to be loving. That means on that day he was just as loving as he is just, as just as loving as he is gracious, just as loving as he is holy. He did not cease to be any things of those moments. And so when we come to passages of Scripture like this, where Scripture speaks, we need to boldly speak. And when scripture is silent, we need to be silent. Because what we are going to see is that God in time and space looked upon mankind and judged mankind for his sin and wickedness. And there is coming a day again where he will do the same thing again. And we are called during this time of repentance, we are called again to remind ourselves not only of the great need for our own salvation, but the great need to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. This is why we take the communion table. The communion table is an open reminder, an open rebuke, if you want to call it, to the church body. Get your act together. All right. Why does the communion table teach us to get our act together? Because if you're not right with one another, you're not right where? With God. So it says, examine yourself. Wake up. Get right with God and get right with each other because there is a day coming that we're all going to do this together. And that day is coming. We have a perfectly righteous and just God who is holy that will come and judge the living and the dead that each of us one day will stand before. And so when we say, what do we learn when we look at passages of Scripture like this? We see God the Creator at work in this world and our response should be this and this alone. Humble yourselves before the Almighty God. And when you do, you will find where you are weak, He is strong. 
and he is more than sufficient to help you in each area of your weakness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, thank you for moments like this. That we get to live out. That I get to live out in front of this flock. A line that I'm going to try to get through here, Lord, to tell them. But with this poor and lispy, stabbering tongue, will lie silent in the grave. Then in a nobler and a sweeter song, I'll get to thy power to save. Help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.